Please be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at the Emmaus Road account, which is in verses 13 to 35. So Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And as you turn there, I'll share with you that I asked Aaron if I could preach on this passage specifically because it is a topic worth our attention throughout the whole year, throughout every day of our Christian life. And it was not too many weeks ago that we were celebrating Easter and before that, Palm Sunday. And this story is the continuation of that. And I thought that we would have a good recollection of all those events that had happened just a few weeks ago as we celebrated. And so... Uh, I thought that we could start in this passage together this morning as a time of devotion and edification. So as we turn here, let's go ahead and read from the passage, verses 13 to 35, then we'll pray for the Lord's assistance in understanding this passage. Starting at verse 13, it reads, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we come before you now. We come before you beneath your word. We come before you eager to learn, eager to be pointed back to Christ, eager to have your spirit work truth within us as we read it now. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to be wise to this portion of scripture, 
that we could hold fast to a truth that every Christian needs, that Christ is risen, that we can have confidence in that. Please bless this time together now, all to the glory of you, to Christ and the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. As we look at this passage together, I want you to remember how we came up to this point because as we're at this, this message, this historical account of Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, let's not forget that several Sundays ago we focused on Palm Sunday. We focused on Jesus' triumphal entry into the city, right? And as we look there, then Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem as he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the place where prophets go to die, and how he would have gathered those in the city to him like little hens under their mother. And then Jesus says, as they're in the upper room, he institutes the Lord's Supper as Judas departs from him as he's predicted to be betrayed. And then there's the nighttime trial, right? The false trial, the illegal trial of the ways of the Jews. And then Pilate, you had Pilate who persecuted Christ, who made him suffer, but who found no fault in him. Yet Jesus was put to the cross. He was turned over to the Jews. At the point of the crucifixion, then he breathed his last, death. And then after he breathed his last, he was brought down from the cross and placed in a tomb. And then as Aaron reminded us on that Easter Sunday sermon, the tomb was found empty. His body wasn't in there and the angels reported to the women who went to the tomb, why do you look for the living among the dead? You see, because Jesus had risen. And so now we find an account of the risen Christ, of Jesus himself, alive after having, been, after having been dead. We see that he is appearing to these disciples as he appeared to many, many others. But I want you to think back to Luke chapter 1 for just a moment. Why did Luke write this gospel account? He says in chapter 1 that he wrote this orderly account specifically that, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And this account of the disciples meeting Jesus after the resurrection is so that you might have certainty concerning the fact that Christ is risen and that you should continue to believe that he is risen, ascended on high, and that your hope in the resurrection is bound up in the fact of whether you believe the truth that Jesus is actually risen from the dead. And as we look at this passage together, I want you to see at least three things. I want you to see that the risen Christ is a reality that confronts doubt. The fact that Christ is risen helps you confront doubt and overcome sadness, fear, despair at the point of death. Also know that through the risen Christ that we know him through the scriptures as we see Jesus demonstrate in this passage. And lastly, that the risen Christ requires a response from us. That if you believe that Christ is risen, it demands a response of you. It demands action. It demands that you do something. And we're going to look at each of those three things together. So looking at the reality that confronts doubt, the fact that when the Christ is risen and he comes to these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, look at verse 15. You see, these disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving and they're discussing all the events that had happened over the past three days, the weekend of the Passover. The fact that this moment had happened where Jesus had entered into the city and that he had been accused and he had been tried and he had been taken before the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. And eventually he was put to death. But he predicted that he would rise again. But they hadn't seen evidence. They'd only heard secondhand testimony from the women that the tomb was empty, that he'd been risen from the grave. They doubted that Jesus would fulfill that which he promised to do, which is that he would rise on the third day. Look at verse 15. It says that they were discussing together. And in verse 17, Jesus says, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other? 
literally translated, it translates that they were throwing comments back and forth to each other. This discussion is not an agreeable discussion where they're both saying, true, true, right, right. I agree with what you say and you agree with what I say. No, they're trying to make sense of all the events that have happened over the weekend. They said, we believe Jesus. We knew that he was different. He did miraculous things. What does it mean that he's no longer with us? You see, they don't believe yet that he's risen. I told my family to believe what Jesus said. We followed him here this weekend. We followed the account of his actions. We changed our whole lives. We changed the way that we viewed the world based on what Jesus promised us. And what now? What does it mean if he isn't risen? Do we return to the synagogue? Do we go back to our old ways? What do we do? What are we supposed to do about this? But as they look here, look, what is this like? What is the emotion? It says in verse 17 when Jesus said, what is it you're talking about? You guys are talking so loudly, so aggressively with each other that anyone could enter this conversation and say, what is all this commotion about? And as Jesus comes onto the scene, the very one that they're talking about, it feels like this. It says that when Jesus asked them, they stood still looking sad. But why were they sad? Because there was a gap between their expectations and the reality that they were believing in. There was a gap between that they thought that Jesus would be raised, but they believed that he was dead, yet he was right before them. And it feels like this. For those of you who have ever lost a loved one, whether it's a grandparent or a parent, a sibling or a spouse, you know what it's like after the, the funeral and after all of the events that you go back home or you go to the house where they lived and you see their reading glasses sitting on the table under the lamp where they used to sit. You can look at the dinner table and you can see where they used to eat every meal. Maybe you had plans with them that are no longer going to come to fruition, no longer going to come to pass because that season is closed. That's what these disciples are feeling. They feel the absence of the relationship of the one that they trusted in, that they were close to, the one that they had hope in. There's an absence that needs to be filled. But with that, look in verse 21. It says that they hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And it says that they believed that he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. They hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They were Jews. They knew the Old Testament. They were familiar with it. The Old Testament predicted that God would send a redeemer to free the people from their oppression, free the people from their bondage. But these Jews understood it in a geopolitical way. They understood it that they were under the oppression of the Romans and that they thought that maybe Jesus is the prophet who might free us. Maybe he would be sent from God to free us from this now timely oppression of the Romans. They couldn't understand the breadth of the salvation and the redemption that God was offering, that was typified, that was pointed forward to from the Exodus, that was pointed forward to in the judges of the Old Testament. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to offer them a redemption so much greater than just being freed from the Romans. But even more than that, if they had any hope in him, they believed that he was dead. Yet he stood before them. And there's this gap between what they believed biblically, biblically and what was true biblically. And we're going to see Jesus address this in the scriptures. See, they didn't understand that the, the Christ had to suffer and die. And so they had unmet expectations. And they didn't believe that he would be raised from the grave. And so they had unmet expectations. And I want you to see that 
as they have this lack of understanding, this lack of faith, this lack of belief, how does Jesus come to them? Look in verse 15. It says that Jesus drew near to them when they were sad. They were sad and Jesus drew near to them. How many of you, at times of fear and doubt and unbelief, has Jesus come close to through the fellowship of other believers, through the scriptures, through his word, and he's comforted you and he's brought you back to the truth of the reality of his resurrection. And he would walk you through patiently that which you needed to know so that you would no longer be sad but could have hope again, could have trust again, a strong faith in him. But it also says in verse 25 and 26 that they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken. Jesus came to them because they didn't understand the scriptures as they needed to, to have a full faith in him, a saving faith in him, a strong faith in him. That's the faith that every believer should want to have, a true faith, a solid faith, a sure faith in what Christ has accomplished. But we have to learn it through the scriptures. So see here how Christ confronts this doubt that they have, this sadness that they have. He confronts it through the scriptures at an intimate way. Let's look at the content of what Jesus teaches them. In verse 25, he calls them foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Why are they foolish? What does Proverbs 1 tell us about what wisdom is and foolishness is? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Trusting in the Lord, believing in the Lord, believing in the word that he's spoken. And foolishness, just the opposite. Failing to believe the word of God. Failing to trust God. Failing to believe that which God says is true. Have these two disciples believed what is true that the scriptures say God affirms? They have not. And the Bible classifies them as fools for that reason. But Jesus says they're slow of heart to believe. That tells us they haven't believed as they should. But what haven't they believed? He says, all that the prophets have spoken. And whenever you look at verse 27, it says that Jesus teaches them by going to Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. Those were Jewish categorical terms. Moses would have been the Pentateuch, the Torah. It would have been the first five books of the Old Testament as we know them. And the prophets would have been the collection as the prophets. The, the Hebrew word for that would have been Nevi'im. And it, it, it refers to the collection of the prophets, the greater prophets and the lesser prophets. And then there's another category, a third category, referred to as the writings. It would have been the Psalms. And if you look at the next passage, which mirrors the one that we're studying right now, very closely in verse 44, it says that Jesus taught them for Moses and the prophets... And the Psalms or the writings might be the account or the translation that you have. That's that third book, that third column of the Old Testament scriptures. So what do we see Jesus doing here? He says, if you want to understand the scriptures, you got to go back to what God has said is authoritative, what his word says, but you need to interpret it rightly. And so when Jesus wants to explain to them who he is and what hope they should have and how they can have a strong faith, he goes to the Old Testament. So that means for us today, the Old Testament is very important to understanding what Jesus accomplished on Easter Sunday and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. We have to go to the Old Testament as well as the New. We have to study the whole of the scriptures to have a strong faith. And whenever we look here, look in verse 24. Whenever the disciples respond to Jesus' question, what are you talking about? They go back and refer to what the women testified to when they went on Easter morning and they went to the tomb and they found it empty. And it says, but the women they did not see Christ. Him they did not see. Think about the unbelief of doubting Thomas. This story of, 
uh, one of the disciples and uh, he doesn't believe that Jesus is risen because he hasn't seen him, hasn't touched him, hasn't felt him, hasn't heard his voice since the resurrection. And Jesus appears to him and he says, touch my side, touch me where the spear pierced me, touch my hands, watch me eat, hear my voice, know that I'm real, I'm really risen. But what does he say? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. Why are they blessed if you believe but you haven't seen? Because you're believing in the very word of God. You're not asking for a secondary proof. And these disciples are saying we really need a secondary proof. How can we believe if we don't have the extra proof? What they're really saying is the word of God isn't sufficient to them for them to believe that Jesus is risen. And while Jesus didn't need to appear to them, he chooses to in mercy and in grace. And he affirms what they should believe by presenting himself to them. But remember also that Luke gives us this orderly account so you might have confidence in the things that you have been taught in the scriptures. This account is also for you and I today because it tells us that Jesus really was risen. He really appeared. These are historical accounts. There are multiple of them. And in the book of Luke, there are more accounts of Jesus appearing to other people in resurrected form, in glorified form before he ascends than in any other of the gospels. If you want proof that Jesus is risen, go to the book of Luke and read the accounts of the fact that he is risen. See the conversations he had with people. See the food that he ate before people. We have all the evidence we need to believe in the scriptures. Everything that could be provided to you is right here in the book of Luke. And we read it here today. But what does Jesus teach them from Moses and the prophets and later in the Psalms? It says in verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then be glorified. He said there was an order to it. He said, you disciples on the Emmaus Road, you thought that the, the Messiah, that the Christ, would just ascend to power. How could he suffer? How could he die? He said, you just thought he would take over and lead a triumphal march either over Jerusalem or out of Jerusalem and that, that the Jews would be restored to power and the Romans would be pushed out. You had no category for a suffering Christ. But Jesus says, haven't you, haven't you read the scriptures haven't you read Genesis 3 where it says that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the son of the woman, the seed of the woman? Haven't you read the account in Isaiah 53 where it says that he would be so bloodied, so massacred, so, so torn up that his own mother wouldn't even recognize his face, that he wasn't even recognizable? Haven't you read Psalm 22 in the writings? Haven't you read where it predicts that the Roman soldiers were going to gamble over his garments of clothes as he was put to suffer, put to the cross? Haven't you read the scriptures? The same Christ that's glorified is the same one that had to suffer. And you see, as long as you only believe that the Messiah is someone who answers you and leads you out from oppression, you don't have to deal with the issue of your own guilt. Jesus says, the Messiah had to suffer because of your sin. And for everyone here today, myself and for you, we needed Christ to suffer. We needed him to die because our sin required his blood. But now we need him risen, we need him resurrected, because he mediates to the Father on our behalf. A dead priest cannot mediate to the Father on your behalf. But a living Christ, a living priest, a living Messiah, our living Jesus, mediates to the Father on our behalf. And he knows that these disciples can't have that hope if they don't actually believe that he's risen. And so he shows them both in the scripture and in person that he will be the one to go to the Father on their behalf. But see here that Jesus doesn't just only minister to them through the scriptures, 
Look at verse 16. It says that they were kept, they were held from recognizing him. They were held from knowing him. What was the cause of them not being able to see him? Commentators will give you three main answers. They'll give you three main possibilities. Some commentators say that these disciples were so grieved by the loss of Jesus that they just they couldn't recognize him. Have you ever been so sad, so focused, so zoned out that when you're looking away, you don't even realize someone has walked up to you? You don't even realize who they are. You can't even process. That's what some commentators say is happening here. There's some plausibility to that, but I don't think that's the right answer. Other commentators say this is a miraculous shielding of Jesus' identity from who they are. And I can ask you, does Jesus, as truly God and truly man, resurrected and glorified, have the ability to shield his identity if he wants to from these disciples? Yes, he does. He has that authority. He has that power. But is that what is happening here? I would argue that's not the best best way to look at this passage. I would say that it's the unbelief of these men. You could even just say the sin of these men kept them from recognizing who Jesus is. Because a heart of faith recognizes Jesus, and that's true today as well. To recognize the call of the voice of Jesus, to enjoy Jesus in the scriptures, to want to go back to the Old Testament to see more of Jesus, to understand who he is, what he did on Easter Sunday, what we're looking forward to him doing in his second coming. It's a heart of faith, a believing heart that does that. These two men at this moment don't have that believing heart. And Jesus seeks to rectify that through the scriptures. And so in verse 27, we see uh, what you would refer to as Jesus' hermeneutic, his way of interpreting the scriptures. It says he interpreted the scriptures about the things concerning himself. That's verse 27. He interpreted the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I believe that the women in our church on Wednesday nights are studying Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's a passage that sets a standard and a precedent for things operating this way as well. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra, uh, the, the people of God, have rediscovered the law. They've rediscovered the scriptures. And they want to know them. They want to submit to them. They want to bow before them. They want to worship God rightly. And what happens there? It says that Ezra reads the law, and then he gave the people the sense so that the people understood the reading. There were elders among the people, and there was prophet or a minister of the people, and he would read the scriptures, and then he would interpret them. He would read the scriptures, and then the elders would explain what it means to the people so they could live in light of it. Jesus is doing that very same thing here for these disciples. The very same method. Doesn't it look a lot like the way that we worship today? It tells us that there's a standard set in the Old Testament and in the way that Jesus ministers for how we should worship on Sunday mornings. What we should observe as a standard whenever we go to the word of God to come under the scriptures so we might know God, obey him, worship him, please him. Think of it this way. Uh, A lot of you have children in this class. Some of you are in elementary school. When do you give a kid adult scissors? Not immediately. You give them safety scissors, right? Whenever you're in preschool, you give them safety scissors. And they're supervised. You teach them how to use what they're going to be given in the future. And there's some patient but probably slightly agitated uh, young teacher on her knees, on the carpet, telling the kid, now cut a circle. Now cut a triangle. Now cut a square. So they can be prepared to use the scissors rightly in the future that they give. And then what happens the first time that you give like a little kid real scissors, sharp scissors? They hack the desk in front of them to pieces. They whittle it down to nothing. They don't use it rightly. They have to figure out, how do I use this? When do I use this? It's the same way with the scriptures. The scriptures are read. They're interpreted. They're taught. 
And then those who are taught are guided in how to live in light of that. And the older teach the younger. And the experienced teach the inexperienced. That's the standard of the Bible. And who is more experienced than Christ? Who is wiser than Christ? Who is more qualified than Christ to interpret the scriptures? But it says also that, that these people are instructed in community. Jesus comes to them uh, when they're together. He can come to you when you are reading your scriptures alone, devotionally, when you're praying, whenever you're reading a passage. But all the more, Christ will instruct you when you're in fellowship. He'll instruct you when you're together. And if you think you're going to learn the scriptures and learn more about Christ in a silo for the majority of your life, be careful. It's better to be supervised. It's better to have instruction. It's better to have those older, those wiser to instruct you. So you don't go awry. But we also see that Jesus interpreted them, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus went back to the Old Testament. He said, this points to me. Genesis points to me. All of the Pentateuch points to me. And then he went to the prophets and he said, Isaiah talked about me. Jeremiah talked about me. Ezekiel talked about me. Even the minor prophets. Malachi talked about me. He said, all the prophets talked about me. You can't understand the Old Testament without understanding Jesus, the risen Christ, and what he was predicted to do and what he fulfilled. And then Jesus says, or it's spoken of Jesus in Hebrews 1. The New Testament looks back and says, who is this Jesus? Why do we need to understand who he is in light of the scriptures? And Hebrew 1, even in just the very beginning, says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The greater revelation, the greater priest, the greater medium through which, the greater person whom we need to understand the scriptures, that we could live good Christian lives, that we could live in reverence to God, the holy God, the almighty God, our creator, our maker, the one who we owe glory, the one who we owe praise for his majesty. We need the scriptures and the master key of Christ to understand these things. And Jesus knows these two disciples on the Emmaus, note, Emmaus Road need this just as much as we do today. And so he provides that to them. But let me ask you, when did these two disciples understand what Jesus was teaching? Well, let's break it into two parts. When did they have the content? When had he finished giving them their instruction? It says that Jesus interpreted the Old Testament to them while they were walking along the road to the house of these two disciples along the way. So they had the instruction in the first half of their lesson with Jesus. They had the content. Was that sufficient for them to believe? Was the knowledge enough? Was simply reading the scriptures enough? Was simply taking a good Bible study enough? I would argue that it wasn't. I would argue that it was necessary, but it wasn't solely sufficient, that the Holy Spirit was also needed, that the operation of the Spirit to apply those truths to the minds and hearts to help those two men believe. Look in verse 31. It says that their eyes were open, but when? It was after the instruction, but not before the Spirit. It says that Jesus sat down at the dinner table with them. It was getting late in the evening, and they said, hey, we're really enjoying this lesson. Come in with us. Hey, let us serve you dinner. We want to spend more time with you. There's something different about what you're teaching us. They haven't yet recognized that he's the risen Messiah. They haven't yet believed that he could really be the one who was raised from the grave. But enough has happened in their heart that they're made wise enough by the Spirit to say, we need more time with you. There's something here. And Jesus sits down with them and he assumes being the head of the table 
he assumes leadership over the table and he prays and it says that he blessed the food and he gave thanks and then he broke it and he gave it to them. Now how many of you, whenever you pray over dinner, also make additional petitions to God the Father? Also make additional petitions to the Trinity? Yeah, you say, Lord, thank you for this meal. Please bless this food to our bodies. Thank you for the hands that made it. Standard prayers, good prayers. Then you might also say, Lord, please help us to live a life pleasing to you. Is it possible that Jesus, when he prayed and blessed his food, he also said, Lord, help these here to glorify you. Help them to know you. Help them to understand the scriptures. And when the son asked the father for these men to know his name, they know him. Because anything that the son asked the father, the father gives. And the spirit applies. It may not have happened at that moment of dinner, but you do see that their eyes are opened whenever they're given the bread that was blessed. At some point, Christ the Son asks God the Father for them to know him. And then shortly after, he vanishes. But there's an application here for us. Parents, when you instruct your kids, be urgent for your kids to know the the gospel. Be urgent for them to believe. Want them to have the same faith that you have, a salvific faith, a faith given by God, but don't be impatient with them. It takes time to know the scriptures. We can't force the Holy Spirit to do anything. All we can do is the part that God has called us to do, which is to give instruction, to load them up with the scriptures. It's like this. It's whenever you want to have a large fire, a great fire, you just keep stacking it with kindling. Yes, you need oxygen. Yes, you need a flame. You need a spark. But go ahead and build that fire up. Load it with fuel so that on the day that the Holy Spirit takes a match and he sets it to all of that fuel, It's a grand flame. It's a strong flame. It's a faith that lasts a lifetime. A flame that could be shared to others. A confident flame. Desire that for your children. Instead of leaving them with a flickering flame, an ember. Real heat, real fire, real burning, but something that looks like it could be snuffed out by the wind at any moment. The difference there is the application of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see Jesus enact this here. We see this play out before us here. In verse 32, look at the effect of the application of spirit and scripture. In verse 32, this is where we get into uh, the risen Christ requiring a response. They have the scriptures. They have Christ. They understand who he is. And now he's departed from them. But they have all they need. They have the scriptures. They believe that he's risen. And what do they do? It says that they have burning hearts in verse 32. When the scriptures were open to them. What made their hearts burn? The spirit and the scriptures and the interpreted scriptures to them and their belief and their understanding. Their hearts burn within them. Read the scriptures. Seek understanding in the scriptures until it requires action of you. If you can read the scriptures and set them down and say, that's very nice. And then go back to your regular business of the day. Dig deeper. Look for Christ within the scriptures. Let it light your heart aflame again so you might act in a way that pleases the Lord every day of your life. And in verse 33, when, when did they respond? It says that same hour, immediately. Think of when the disciples were called to follow Christ. It says immediately they dropped everything that they had and they followed him. That same hour, they depart. And what do they do? In verse 33, it says that they found the 11. They sought fellowship. When you believe in the risen Christ, you have to be in the fellowship of other believers because those are the people that also celebrate with joy the fact that he's risen. 
Where do you go when you believe? You go to be with other believers so you can praise God together for the fact that he has risen Christ who now mediates on our behalf, who now calls a spirit on our behalf, who gives us the spirit, who won us the spirit, the Christ who suffered on our behalf, the Christ who fulfilled all of scripture, and the Christ who will fulfill the predictions that he will return again. We celebrate this together this very morning. We have reason to have joy to go out and to go into the week and tell as many people as we can about it because we believe that this is true because God has given us this belief and it's something sure worth trusting in. And what do they do when they're in fellowship? It says in verse 34, they receive testimony. The disciples and those others in the room say, yes, Simon Peter, he saw the risen Christ. He's encountering him as well. Now multiple people have seen him. We have an account that multiple people have seen the risen Christ. Believe this is a historical account from Luke, the historian, Luke, the doctor, Luke, the elegant writer. He recorded this for you to believe that there are multiple people who saw Jesus risen. And then in verse 35, what do these two disciples do? They do their part and they also share their testimony. They say, we've seen him too. And he opened the scriptures with us and he explained to us everything that happened. And then he was gone. And if you read the next passage of scripture, which we won't have time to get into today, Jesus appears to them again. And he gives them further proof, further evidence. And he specifically appears to those who would be apostolic because they have a special work to do in the foundation and the building of the church, the church that we're a part of today as believers. Testimony, testimony, fellowship, testimony. Revelation 12 tells us, it says this, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the reality of the risen Christ who suffered and was raised, by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And then later it says, Satan went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The reality that we live in today, the last days that we have until the second coming of Christ, this inner period between the first raising of Christ and the return of Christ, this period that we're in, we celebrate the risen Christ and we hold to it until he comes again. In the same way that you need the help of the Spirit in the Scriptures to believe that Christ is risen, is the same help that we need today to hold firm to the fact that Christ has promised to return, though he hasn't yet. One last thing I want you to see as we close. In verse, 37, or in verse 30 of our passage, it says that Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. He assumes being the head of the table. What is this like? This is like whenever a group of people, maybe a group of businessmen or a family sits down. Who does the waiter give the check to at the end of a dinner in a restaurant? They give it to who they think is going to pay. They give it to who they think is in charge, right? That's, that's who's in charge of the table who guides the flow of the table, the conversation, how the meal progresses. Jesus is this head of table. He is the, the wisest. He is the authority at the table. Isn't it interesting that whenever he's in the house of someone else, he's in charge, but he is in charge. And he blesses them and he gives them what they need. As the provider, the head of household, the head of the table, the head of the church, the head of you and the head of me, Christ provides to us what we need. And so we look to this now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper that Jesus in the breaking of bread gave these disciples what they need in himself demonstrated through the bread that he gave. 
So please remember that Christ is risen. Remember that we know him through the scriptures. Remember that he overcomes fear and doubt and that you should have joy in the fact that he's raised and that it requires a response from you. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we bow before you, recognizing that you have raised Christ from the dead, that he has authority over life and over death, and that we trust in him just as he was raised to raise us as well. That Paul says he was really raised from the grave, and so we trust that our resurrection will be the same because he was raised. We take hope in the truth of the scriptures, Father. We bless your name for them. And now we prepare and pray that you would bless us in the taking of the sacrament as we look to an affirmation of the faith as you have given it to us in these means. In Christ's name, amen.